Well, hello and welcome to the Auto Buyer's Guide podcast powered by Alex on Autos. I'm Tim Masso here with Alex Dykes. This week, we're opening with a discussion of something that just feels wrong. It is the off-road biased crossover, and it seems to be the wave of the future. What's going on, Alex? Are these things for real? Off-road biased crossover. I mean, I guess you could say that that has always been the uh, the Land Rover and the Land Rover Range Rover, actually, I guess I should say, and the Jeep Grand Cherokee. Um, definitely two traditional crossovers, I guess, depending on how you want to look at it. But uh, but yeah, I would actually say that it's probably the success relatively of Land Rover Range Rover, Land Rover brand generally, and Jeep that has caused everybody to want to pile on to this off-roady thing. Now, Jeep I see, Land Rover I see, but when I went to the New York Auto Show this year, I couldn't get over all of the off-roadified, like strict car-based crossovers I saw. Get <laughs> Telluride X-Pro, Nissan Pathfinder Rock Creek. We're talking a body kit, half an inch of lift kit, and, and maybe a traction mode for loose surfaces. Yeah, Where does true. this come from? I, I honestly think it does trace back to the success of, of Land Rover and Jeep and these manufacturers going, you know what, we want a piece of that action because who really takes their Grand Cherokee off-road? Uh, surely not 300,000 units a year, right? So, you know, if we can take a bite of that action with something that looks a bit more rugged, offers the promise of slightly greater off-road ability, and in some of them, there is truly an improvement in off-road durability and ability. Some of them will have skid plates either from the factory or they're made by the factory, designed by the factory, but installed by the dealer. Um, some of them will have a very basic all-terrain tire on them. Um, and of course, a little bit of extra body cladding to help you, you know, I guess, look a little bit more off outdoorsy uh, on the trail there. Um, but to be honest, tires make a big difference. So simply swapping out some uh, all-season tires for all-terrain tires is going to have a noticeable improvement. And software can solve a lot these days. That's true. And I think some of them are more serious than others. Now, the one that caught for my sure. eye, because it looks otherworldly when you see it on the road, almost like a Unimog that's been <laughs> flattened. But a Subaru Outback Wilderness, this starts about $37,000. The number that stands out is nine and a half inches. That's the ground clearance, and that's for real. Yeah, that's a lot of ground clearance in the Outback Wilderness, although there are a few things to consider. The first thing, of course, would be that the Outback Wilderness needs the ground clearance because it has a long wheelbase. I mean, it is basically a legacy station wagon that has been jacked way, way, way up. Um, and as a result of its long overhangs and its long wheelbase, it needs the extra ground clearance to give you the same kind of approach departure and breakover angles that you'd expect. So, you know, uh, a Jeep Cherokee, not the Grand Cherokee, but a Jeep Cherokee in Trailhawk trim is going to beat it off-road pretty much any time. And it's going to go places that the Outback Wilderness simply could never go. Um, but the ground clearance definitely helps it. Um, it has the black graphics, which look cool as well. It has the turbocharged engine standard. It's a good deal for the turbo. Uh, but not significant changes to the Subaru all-wheel drive system, which for on-road duty and you know dirt road, gravel road duty is just fine. But for more serious off-roading work, there are definitely some limitations with the Subaru all-wheel drive system and their CVT. Yeah, and I would go so far as to second what you said about tires. Tires make a huge difference. I mean, mm -hmm. our grandparents made do with tire chains which kind of proved that as long as you can get moving, you can avoid the worst of, you know, 
mud and snow. Um, so yep. that probably makes a bigger, you've got big Yokohama Geolanders on that Subaru, which probably mm -hmm. make a bigger deal when you're on mud or snow or terrain. I see this more of an, more as an overlanding type of car than, than an off-roader. Yeah, that's probably the best description for it. Um, you know, for for people that aren't familiar with these terms, you know, it, it, there's the wide variety of off-roading. Some people think that a gravel road is off-road. Um, you know, other people would take that up to the next step of, you know, driving across grass, perhaps. Um, and then there are, you know, obstacles that Broncos and Wranglers are designed for where you're trying to climb up rocks, etc. in your Jeep and Moab, that sort of thing. So there's lots of levels of off-roading and off-roading ability um, and various kinds of systems, mechanical, electronic, or otherwise, that are going to be required for taking you to that next level. But just simple tires are an important part of this deal. Um, you know, for instance, I have some cheesy, uh, I can't even remember the name of the brand. It's a knockoff of the KO2 tire. It's like a cheap, 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 cheap knockoff of a KO2 on my Jeep. And uh, it has three open differentials. Uh, it is, it everything is shot. All the Verilock units are toast in this Grand Cherokee. Um, and it will go places you just could not go in a new Grand Cherokee with all season tires, simply because of the tire choice. Um, and it is remarkable how much difference those tires make, um, you know, but by the time you get to that kind of an off-road tire, they're terrible on-road. So there's always a balancing act with these kinds of vehicles. So if you can have a crossover that core functionality feels good on-road and you swap in some very mild off-road rubber, um, a little bit of extra ground clearance, you haven't compromised the vehicle too much. I think it's still a decent balance between on-road and off-road ability. Uh, you know, the further down either of those roads you go, the more compromise you have. So by the time you've Grand Cherokee trailhawked uh, from the factory, uh, you know, you've compromised a reasonable amount of on-road ability, but taking it to that next level where we see Wrangler or Wrangler Rubicon, even just from the factory, you've given up a lot more on-road ability. Yeah, without a doubt, there's no comparing the Cherokee Trailhawk to any of these. I, I mean, I would mm -hmm. compare most of these new vehicles to like Audi's S-Line trim, where you get yeah. wheels, tires, some body kits, and very little else. Some of them do offer more, and I think one good example is, we can't use the Cherokee as a comparable, because it was That's designed true. with a 56 to 1 crawl ratio, mm -hmm. a locking rear axle, a million things these others will not have. Although, the Toyota RAV4 TRD off-road, except for its absence of tow hooks, is pretty respectable. It's not bad, but in in large in large measure, something like the the CX50 Meridian, which is going to be coming out very soon, uh, and the X Pro, if I'm remembering these you know digits and letters here correctly from from Hyundai Kia, they're substantially similar in terms of off road capability. Um, the Toyota TRD Pro package in Rav4 basically includes limited slip functionality on the rear axle, but no transfer case. Um, it's not going to permanently lock the center coupling like you could in a Cherokee. Um, and again, that's Cherokee, not Grand Cherokee. So it's, it's you know, an improvement over a regular crossover in the segment, but it's really not taking things to that next level. It's trying to fill the gap uh, between, honestly, because there has been, in terms of off-road capability or, or soft-road capability, you might say, a pretty massive gap between RAV4, CRV, Tucson, etc., and then the next level where we saw the Cherokee, whether we're talking about the new one or the old one, etc. There's been a huge gulf between those, and now we're starting to see these models sort of fill in that difference. 
Yeah, without a doubt. And some of them really are more cosmetic than anything else. As you mentioned with Kia, there's X Pro, but there's also X Line, <laughs> where you get yes. the look of the X Pro uh, without exactly. the without the 0.4 inch lift. Yep, and this is sort of following the lead from the truck market, where you know Nissan did the uh, the the uh, rear all the four wheel drive off road truck package, and then they said, hey, people like the look, but they don't want four wheel drive, so we'll give them the look with rear wheel drive. Um, and it's, it's something that we've seen uh, from other manufacturers before. And I am not entirely clear what good an off-road two-wheel drive trim is, but some people seem to be interested in it. Um, and frankly, a lot of this does end up being styling and that desire for for the, the image. Um, and I will say that there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. I mean... Wrangler sales did not go from 20,000 a year to 250,000 a year because that many more people suddenly took up rock crawling. Well, it's true. Toyota wished it could do that with the 4Runner and probably probably cries itself to sleep every night for discontinuing the FJ, but that's a fact. Yep. I mean, but then look at 4Runner sales strangely up, uh, you know, over where they have been in the past. And I, I have a suspicion that it's, it's really just about that rugged off-road image. Even though it's old, there is a segment of society that is growing, segment of the automo automotive buying public, um, that wants something more rugged. Uh, a good friend of mine who has a Wrangler that has never left pavement, and she's got the shovels and the gas tanks and the, the ladders and the jack and all of that on her beautiful, beautiful red Wrangler. And I laugh at it every time I see it, and I kind of laugh at her secretly every time I see it. But she's like, you know what? I, I like the image, and I really don't want to scratch my car. And she's totally up front that it's just cosmetic, but she loves the look. That's okay. We've There's a strong tradition of this with SUVs, and... During the 90s, the previous version of this was the longboard permabonded to the top of an old Wagoneer by mm -hmm. a non-stiffer. Yep. So this has been going on. Yeah, it's it's a wacky thing. And, you know, another very good friend of mine that some people might be familiar with, Emmy Hall, who is currently over at CNET now, she goes off-roading in a two-wheel drive lifted Mazda Miata. So, um, and I mean serious off-roading where... 99% of the off-roading public would probably fear to tread in anything. She will take a jacked-up MX-5 with max tracks and a whole bunch of spare tires. Now, there is one vehicle in the... By the way, she's my hero. But there is... <laughs> There is one vehicle in this segment that stands out as much as the Cherokee does because it's as different in its way as the Cherokee is, and that's the new Subaru Solterra, which has given us mm -hmm. a legitimate 8.3 inches of ground clearance, X-mode traction, a reasonable orientation, if not toward off-roading, towards soft-roading. Yeah, it is a very interesting twist there. Um, if you want an EV with really over about seven inches of ground clearance and you don't want to pay, you know, more than $60,000 and you don't want an F-150 Lightning, which is the other thing that'll get you that kind of clearance, you have two options and it's the Solterra and it's, you know, sister to the Toyota BZ4X. Yeah, and so, I mean, Subaru, first, they're only offering it in all-wheel drive, so they know what they're their audience wants there's a little bit more ground clearance i think about 0.3 inches so they are trying to emphasize that this i don't want to call it an off-roader but i would say it's yeah. the spiritual heir to their rally cars more than anything else they're making with the sti gone this feels like the spiritual heir to the yeah. rally cars of subaru past you should be able to take the bz4x and the solterra both um, the variance in gr actual ground clearance appears to be metric conversion between 
uh, the okay. Japanese market and the American market, according to Toyota, because uh, they were kind of surprised that the numbers were different. They said, huh, we thought they were the same. Um, so take that for, you know, whatever it's worth. Um, but either of those, according to Subaru, who was the one that developed the all-wheel drive system programming, should be able to basically go anywhere with the same tires that a Forester or Outback, regardless of version, will go. Um, with the slight exception that depending on exactly the traction situation, the BZ4X and Solterra may actually be able to send more torque to the rear axle than those other alternatives, um, which I was surprised by because the total torque figures aren't massive in either of those vehicles. Um, but with the latest Subaru all-wheel drive system, they're actually being pretty protective of the clutch pack, so they're never really going to send 100% of engine power to the rear axle even when the front wheels are slipping, it's going to be a, a more moderated amount, generally about 60 or 70%, it appears. And so I'm going to recap probably the most important point made in this segment, which is that if you want to go on rougher roads or slushier roads or muddier roads with any vehicle, tires are number one. And I'm going to throw in one other thing, defeatable traction control. Those are the two keys. True. Or at the very least, a traction control system that works with you rather than against you. And that is one of the big innovations I would say that that Subaru has done a really good job with is their traction control programming. Um, and so when you take a look at, say, a, a CRV is probably a really good example. If you have a CRV out on a rougher trail where there's is some some undulation, some moguls maybe, where there's one tire up in the air, that sort of thing it will have a hard time sending power across the axle because it's going to try and limit engine power. It's going to try and reduce wheel speed all over the place rather than realizing that maybe you're in a situation where all we want to do is just try and have all the wheels turn at the same rate. And Subaru is going to be much more willing to, to adapt to that setup with their X mode programming. That's really all that it does. It just tells the car, you know, Hey, this person wants reduced traction control and they want the traction control to function more like a limited slip differential than a killjoy, I guess you could say. And then Jeep has that taken to the next level where they do have, you know, limited slip mechanical and locking mechanical axles available up in their lineup. And then their software is definitely programmed to mimic those as far as how the vehicle is going to progress on a trail. So, you know, one wheel kicked up in the air, two wheels kicked up in the air on either side. It's going to use the brakes to modulate that, allow you to still maintain power, and then roll you forward. And we see something pretty similar to maybe a little bit of a lesser extent in something like the, uh, the RAV4 TRD. Um, what exactly we're going to see in the upcoming Meridian model from Mazda, we don't know, but they're promising similar things. This will be a space to follow because after trying to iron all of the truck out of the crossover SUV for 30 years, we're seeing a little bit of a pendulum swing back, but we're still in early innings here. This has a long way to go. Mm -hmm. And there are still plenty of, you know, very on-road focused crossovers out there. Um, but I think it is this, this gradual change towards, you know, realizing that people like all wheel drive and, People like all-wheel drive for different things. Some people want it for winter traction. A lot of winter traction people are really obsessed with ground clearance as well. So this kind of will help them out uh, if that's something that you're in, uh, you know, really interested in. Um, and then a lot of people really imagine their lifestyle differently than it really is. You know, it's the I go, you know, mountain biking twice a year, so I should have a more rugged bike so I could go further down that trail, go to a better mountain biking park, that sort of thing. Um, and then there are actually people that use them regularly for, for whatever off-road use that they have, and that is certainly there, and that's what the capability is for. But it's a, um, 
it's a different market. I know that Subaru was pretty direct with the wilderness vehicles. They said that they wanted to take a bite of the aftermarket, basically, okay. that they saw a lot of dealers upfitting their vehicles from the factory before sale. So they would bring in a brand new Subaru, they would upfit, and then they would charge big markups and sell them on to the customers. And they thought, you know, we could provide a product that would be warranted by the manufacturer, maybe slightly more profitable, but gives the customer better value than what the dealer was doing. We've definitely seen that and that's a fact and they've been open about that. Also coming out of the pandemic where increasingly people are trying to take their activities outside, uh, trying to get away from population centers, spending a little bit more time, you know, with few friends or family, Bureau of Land Management type areas, national parks, remote reaches. Uh, that's one of the other elements propelling this. Um, mm -hmm. Now, if you can imagine a Mustang Mach-E becalmed in about four feet of mud, that would be an example of the opposite of what we just discussed, but a great metaphor for our next topic, which is the disaster porn of every EV maker that is not Tesla or Lucid right now. What is going on with Rivian? Before we talk about Canoe, Faraday, and Lordstown, we need to talk about Rivian because that's kind of the best of the bunch. And I will say, uh, I don't have good sales figures for Lucid. Have you seen, what, how many have they sold? I mean, it's been hundreds. It's very few. Like there's, okay. there's how many they've made and there's how many they've delivered. And you'll see with Rivian, mm -hmm. there's a big disparity between made and delivered. Right. And I suspect that some of this is, is brand positioning. Lucid started out saying, we're gonna be an ultra luxury manufacturer. We're gonna compete with the Model S and above. $100,000, $150,000 luxury cars. So sales expectations were quite low. Um, Rivian had this promise of being, you know, more of the everyday man's vehicle, albeit some of that was probably misplaced, I think, from the audience because the prices were pretty high even prior to the, the massive, massive hike in Rivian pricing. They were already well above uh, any other midsize truck in America. So for the theoretical base price of the Rivian pre-price update, you could already have bought two Toyota Tacomas, um, you know, easily well-equipped uh, Tacomas for that price. So bearing that in mind, um, I'm intrigued because Rivian seems to have a really solid footing. Everything that I have seen and read and the people that I know that work at Rivian, et cetera, um, they have a very solid engineering lead here versus some of the other car companies that are, you know, really startups here. So, I mean, they have an actual manufacturing facility that Mitsubishi used to run ostensibly it used to make hundreds of thousands of vehicles. So, you know, the, the infrastructure is there for that from a, you know, low level infrastructure level. Um, they have a lot of R and D talent, a lot of Apple hires, a lot of, um, uh, Tesla hires as well. So people that are experienced in tech, people that are experienced in car building and a reasonable number of traditional automotive, uh, talent as well. So they didn't just go down the Tesla rabbit hole where we're going to try and reinvent everything. They pulled a lot of traditional automotive talent in, uh, internally in terms of their design and the design of the Rivian does seem to be very solid. Um, from the battery pack technology to the manufacturing to, um, you know, the, the relative conservative nature of, of how they've chosen to design their charging systems and cooling systems and all that. They just seem to have a real inability to build them. Um, and their, uh, their sort of supply line constraints definitely seem to be a problem. They're also quite late. Um, and I'm not entirely clear what has evolved uh, over the last two years, but we should say that, you know, Rivian 
theoretically should have been shipping for two complete years by the time we're talking right now. And that's obviously, you know, hasn't happened. Um, they blame the pandemic for part of it. Maybe that gives them a little bit of a pass, but I'm not sure it gives them a 24 month pass. Yeah, there's been a lot. I mean, we can talk about all the things that are right with Rivian and the big one above everything else is 16 billion in cash or cash equivalents available. Mm -hmm. So that's that puts them in a completely different category than the other ones I mentioned. Exactly. But things that have gone wrong, again, like you said, they are very late with the deliveries. They are pegging back their estimates this year. They're saying they're still going to deliver 25,000 despite delivering only about 1,200 to this point. Yep. Um, and they had to peg that number, 25,000, back from about 40 to 50,000. So it is a step back. There are also questions ultimately about their ability to deliver on their contract with Amazon. Now, Amazon's an 18% stakeholder, so I think they're going to get second chances, but Amazon is also working with other suppliers now to look at its next generation van supply. So Rivian doesn't have a monopoly on this revenue source, and it does have to get itself together. It burned through a lot of goodwill with the March price increase, which saw the average price of the the truck raised from about seventy six thousand to roughly ninety two, ninety three thousand. Although it later walked back that upcharge for people who are existing holders, uh, they've only added about ten thousand new pre orders since that time. And while mm -hmm. they're thinking that is good, I'm not so sure. Um, yeah. Yeah, I guess the question will be eventual volume. You know, once we can actually get this thing out on the road in person and see it, uh, you know, maybe they'll actually be able to get more orders and people can actually buy it. I don't know if it's a problem that they've only had 10,000 orders so far. They had, they had a ton of pre-orders, a ton of cash in the bank because of the the size of their pre-order bank and the cost of it. Um, and honestly, you know, if you order one now, you're not going to get it for a really long time anyway. So why bother pre-ordering it is, I would assume, what a lot of customers are saying, potential customers. I also worry uh, long term that Lightning is going to have a massive impact on, on Rivian sales. Why would you get the $90,000 you know, Rivian when you could buy a much less expensive Lightning and it would be a full-size truck? Um, you know, that is a tough road there. Um, and at the moment, we do not see any significant tech advantages for the Rivian. If it had been on time, I think this would be a different conversation because we would have said, well, you know, it's sure it's only 400 volts. Sure, it charges, you know, just about as fast as lightning, but it was first. It was two years ahead. You know, it's more off-roady. It's got the four-motor setup, et cetera. Got the cool, you know, mid-sized truck-sized uh, category, which does appear to be actually growing pretty rapidly in the U.S. right now again. Um, but as it is now, it's, a, I think, a tougher sell. And you're absolutely right that their, their pre-orders are very strong. They've only booked 10,000 more since the price increase, but they have 90,000 overalls. So they're in much mm -hmm. better shape in terms of actual... And they've, and they've got a decent amount of cash at the bank from those pre-orders because it wasn't a cheap pre-order. No, I, I think if you're Rivian, you are, though, worried about the Lightning. And first, it's because Ford's delivering them. Second, mm -hmm. it's because the truck landed... And despite the unibody and the mid-sized platform, somehow Ford came out ahead of Rivian on efficiency, which I think probably shocked them when they saw what that was. That's able true. To do. Yeah, and the Rivian is somewhere between worlds with its with its sort of um, quasi-hybrid structure. The funky thing that I think some pickup truck buyers are going to be a little iffy on is that the frame is not completely isolated from the body. It's like. If, you're, if there is going to be a world between unibody and frame, it's Rivian because they're bolted together. There doesn't appear to be welded together, but the body and the cab are one body piece bolted onto the sort of Rivian-y skateboard thing. 
um, which is how it's going to work in the SUV as well and why they were able to easily, you know, use the same basic parts for both. But it does prevent some it does pose some challenges rather because it doesn't have the classic truck ability for the body and cab to flex independently of one another which provides durability with heavier loads and higher payloads and towing over time etc so exactly how that's really going to sort out we have to really wait and see and uh, you know ford's been at the towing and payload game longer so for real truck things i would still bet on ford over the rivian yeah, the other thing that's important to note with Rivian, and, and it's really the only thing, is that as long as they've got cash, they've got time. Mm -hmm. All of the special purpose acquisition companies, uh, with the possible exception of Lucid, because they were a SPAC, but the uglies are the companies that are all issuing going concern notices to their investors. Like yes. Rivian will sort itself out. Uh, Canoe, which is the Arkansas-based startup that was building something best described as a suppository-shaped transportation pod, has... <laughs> oh, you laugh, but I, I just nailed it. Right I mean, that, that's, that's pretty true. I mean, I'm not going to argue that one. <laughs> I'm sorry. They're actually trying to convince their investors that they can make it with about 100 million cash on hand. They are burning through cash, yeah. and they have very little access to capital markets from here. Yeah, I would say Rivian's got a good chance. Karma could be there karma's going in a slightly different direction because they're not going to be manufacturing all the vehicles themselves which is a weird and interesting twist they're using some contract manufacturing um what do you think of the new pair i'm not a fan of the name pair for a car i mean when things go pear-shaped this is not a good direction for things to go so i'm i'm kind of surprised that they went that direction yeah, I don't think this is a good time period to be offering any new electric products that aren't already in a pipeline. Like, I'm going to be perfectly honest. I think it's going to be a lot harder to get access to money going forward. And if something isn't already almost built or ready to tool up, I, I think it's pretty close to doomed. And I, I hate to say that, but I look at Faraday Future claiming that they've started pre-production model runouts. And I'm just like, yeah, I'll bet. Faraday Future yeah. is in danger of being delisted from the NASDAQ. Anything that's new right now is arriving at exactly the wrong time. Yeah. And it's like, has Faraday Future actually shipped anything? I could not find any actual evidence that anything had been sold. No, Faraday okay. Future has not shipped anything. They're claiming they have they're claiming they have two hundred million cash or cash equivalents, which if true would shock me, but even that's gonna get them mm -hmm. nowhere near where they wanna be. Yeah, so for reference, Karma has sold 90 cars this quarter, in first quarter, I should say, 2022. Rivian sold 900. As of the recording of this video, theoretically, they're at around 2,000 units shipped. Karma probably maybe 200, something like that. And the rest of them, pretty much nothing other than pre-production units trotted out at car shows and maybe an executive's running around in a pre-production something, but that's pretty much it. Yeah, so, you know, for instance, Canoe burned through over $100 million in cash in the first quarter. They mm -hmm. say they have about $100 million on hand. Uh, Faraday, which is trading at about $2.60 on the NASDAQ, is in danger of being delisted and sending out going concern notices to its investors. And then you've got Lordstown. So when you talk about the pair, to me it's interesting because this is a vehicle that would ostensibly be built by Foxconn for Fisker. And Foxconn is now joined at the hip, at least in terms of crosswise investment, with Lordstown. They've got a joint venture that was just formed, and the factory itself was just sold from Lordstown to Foxconn. Yep. So 
what is Foxconn going to do? Are they going to favor their joint venture with Lordstown and focus on getting the endurance pickup to market? Or are they going to focus on contract manufacturing from, for Fisker and maybe Apple later down the road? Yeah, it's it's really uncertain. I would say I would argue that it's whoever has the battery contract. Um, and that is the big, big thing that people need to keep in mind is you could have the best designs in the world as Rivian has proven. I think the design is really good, but if you can't get your hands on the battery cells, which appears to be part of Rivian's issue, um, batteries, chips, and a few other related components, but it seems to be primarily battery and chip supplies. Um, it, it's a, definitely a, a hard thing to do. And I'm not entirely clear why it's so hard for them because their original projection was, uh, what do they say, 30,000 a year was the original projection for uh, Rivian in the first year of production. It's quite an old you know, uh, production forecast there. Uh, Lordstown, they were initially saying 32,000 units a year in their original forecast, and Wall Street has them at uh, hoping for 2,200 the first year of production. Um, and I just don't know if that's enough to make money. You know, when you look at how other car companies have sold here. So, you know, in 2021, we all talk about JLR, Jaguar, Land Rover having a hard go of it. In 2021, they sold 106,000 cars a year. So even if everything aligned properly, we're talking about sales volumes roughly like Jaguar in the United States, which is a brand not going really any particular direction. Um, and I think you really just have to get down towards, you know, Tesla Mazda sales volume before you can actually make it work, um, which, you know, for the record, Mazda still outsold Tesla in 2021. So, you know, if you don't think you see many Mazdas around, uh, keep that in mind. That's that's important to note. And Tesla has a couple of things. They seem to have seniority in chip purchase contracts. Uh, they also have their own battery supply. So mm -hmm. if the new Rivian factory, because this is kind of big. Rivian's building a new factory in Georgia. It's going to be a billion and a half dollars. It's going to have thousands of jobs on site. But does it have a battery component or is it just vehicle manufacture? Yeah, that is an interesting question. And I don't I have not had a good answer on that one. Um, you know, I will say that for Rivian, the the benefit for Rivian versus some of the other car companies that are starting up here is that they're not targeting inexpensive shoppers. They're following basically Tesla's mold, starting with a relatively expensive vehicle. Maybe there'll be something later, but the expensive vehicle makes a lot of sense. Um, and we're talking about relative car company size. Um, this is sort of how it sorts out. You know, Daimler in the United States sold 329,000 cars last year in the United States. Tesla, 301,000 cars. Mazda right in the middle at 328,000. But the financial situation at Daimler and the ability for them to invest in their product is much greater than Mazda because they have a huge, huge profit on every vehicle they sell because the price is high. So I think that's, you know, Tesla's, you know, direction as well. Tesla's finally starting to make money. So if we follow the follow the dollars here in the trend, um, you know, it's about 15 years, I guess, of operation and high sales prices, which get you to where you need to be to do anything. Um, and that's you're still not operating as a traditional car company where they would theoretically have been spending big bucks redesigning complete vehicle platforms. Um, and so far, we haven't seen that. So Model S is a refresh on a refresh on a refresh on a refresh, albeit fairly significant. Um, but the structure of the vehicle has not changed appreciably over that time. Now, that's important to note. It is very expensive to develop a vehicle. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the reasons I'm so skeptical about Lordstown. Whereas 2,500 vehicles made in the first quarter might be okay 
Peruvian with their Amazon investment, their cash on hand, their new factory coming. And a $90,000 truck. <laughs> also important. Lordstown, not only are they jumping into the most competitive segment in the market in full-size trucks, mm -hmm. um, but let's just run up a scorecard of what's happened recently. So Foxconn bought their factory for about $230 million. They also got a reimbursement of expenses from Foxconn for basically money spent inside the factory. Uh, there were some additional loans that brought them to about $307 million sunk into Lordstown. And then there was another joint venture that was created where Foxconn put in $100 million, of which $45 million was a loan. And I'm just not sure that these little drips and drops of $10 million here, $50 million there, are going to get them through the roughly $100 to $200 they're going to burn each quarter mm -hmm. trying to bring this truck to market. And again, the Ford is shipping now. Yep, exactly. And I mean, there's a big, there's a big half-ton truck market in the U.S., and, you know, admittedly, all the order books are full for Lightning. So if there is truly a demand, say, of 200,000 EV truck units this calendar year, and Ford can only fill 70,000 or 80,000 of them this year, then there is still a huge deficit and a huge demand that could be filled by one of these other car companies if they could do it. The question is, can they do it in time? And if Ford ramps up production as their intent is, by the end of 2023, they will have a run rate of 150,000 Lightnings a year, not 150,000 units produced in 2023. It's simply that, you know, by the time December rolls around, they'll be building, what, 15,000 something a month, whatever that number ends up being to get you to 150,000 units a year. Um, and we don't know whether or not how demand and supply will align there. Let's put it that way. We do know, however, that there's a, a ton of demand for Mach-E. And even their current production is simply not keeping up. So if there continues to be the appetite for that, there's room. Even if it's not your first choice, it's just the available choice. There could be people that will do that. Um, the harder question ends up being what happens in a world where the demand starts, uh, you know, leveling off and supply levels off as well, but, you know, generally meets demand. In that world, it's going to be much harder to shift metal. Well, it's going to be a there's probably going to be a slackening of demand, but I would also say it's a much tougher segment if you can't launch in the next few months, because sooner or later, you're going to be facing trucks from Chevy. You're going mm -hmm. to be facing the Tesla Cybertruck in the market. Ford will be more advanced in its production of the Lightning. There may be new variants we haven't predicted yet. Um, you know, there will be more players in the electric truck space. Rivian will be at scale. Like it will be a much more crowded market with potentially less overall demand yeah. by the time Lordstown gets this endurance to market. And that's before we even talk about questionable engineering decisions like hub motors or whether this thing's even going to stand shoulder to shoulder with those other trucks. It's also not the prettiest truck. Let's be frank. You yeah, know, I, I, it's, it's a little homely. No, you're absolutely right about that. I mean, it's but, not as it's not as eye gougingly ugly as Cybertruck. Um, which yeah. honestly, I don't know if we will ever see, um, but it it is not attractive to my eye. I honestly would not be surprised if Ram has a plug-in hybrid, uh, at least a plug-in hybrid Ram before we see a Cybertruck actually on sale, Ooh, because we do know that the plug-in hybrid Ram is coming. And that's kind of an interesting side twist in this segment is that Ram is going after the pragmatic middle rather than the EV edge case, I guess you'd say. They've said, you know, there'll be an electric ram at some point, don't worry. But what we are going to be pledging sooner is a plug-in hybrid ram. 
So you think a uh, Jeep 4xe hardware and a Ram 1500? That's what all indications point to is probably the inline six, the new twin turbo inline six plus electric motors and a ZF8 speed um, and some sort of midsize battery pack in the middle. Um, what kind of range and fuel economy we'll get, we don't know. But that actually could be a much more logical play for Ram because with the same number of battery cells, you could produce two, three times the number of trucks. Um, and you'd be getting pretty significant cafe benefits for your you know, increased fuel economy. You'd be getting ZEV credits in California, depending on the range, et cetera. Um, so that seems to be the play they're going after. Also, a lot less expensive than a Lightning, most likely. So interesting segue, I guess, from this discussion of electric trucks and troubled electric manufacturers uh, to EVs generally, which are doing very well. According to Experian, the U.S. market was up 60% for EVs in the first quarter. So EV registrations, which is how they measure these things, up 60%, even as the market as a whole was down 18% mm -hmm. from the first quarter a year ago. If you go by uh, Cox Auto's numbers, which I tend to favor, then it's actually now 5.2% of the US market, true EVs, plugins, not, not compound hybrids, but real EVs, now one in 20 cars sold in the US. Mm -hmm. Is this for real? And is it for boots? Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. Um, you know, some of these numbers are a little bit difficult to divine until we actually take a look at all the manufacturers' official sales reports, maybe for second quarter somewhere around there, and then really really filter out the plug-in hybrid situation because a lot of these numbers do conflate them, as you said, um, and it's it's difficult to actually get a, a, a firm hold on that number until we see the DOE numbers, either the California Department of Energy or the Federal Department of Energy and what they choose to put out, um, because they do separate those those numbers as far as registrations go. Um, but we are seeing a massive increase in some manufacturer sales, for instance, like uh, Tesla sold only 300,000 cars last year. First quarter this year, they already sold 110,000 cars in the United States. So that's a pretty significant increase. And if they can continue at that pace, that'll be, you know, a 33% jump just for that one brand. Uh, we are also seeing significant demand again of Mach-E. It's the, the third best selling EV in the U.S. right now. Um, there's the new Lightning coming on board, et cetera. Uh, obviously, this is partially spurred by high gas prices and mandates yes. here and there. But uh, if gas prices continue high, I could definitely see this being, you know, uh, an increasing trend. The other interesting thing is that some manufacturers definitely appear to be prioritizing some chip supply towards EVs rather than their regular gasoline vehicles, possibly because of, of the desire to chase those, those mandated goalposts. Um, it's difficult to really say because the chips are not interchangeable. So it's not like, you know, we have a chip shortage. I'll take these chips and throw them in an EV because they're not necessarily the same chips. But there definitely seems to be a prioritization in production and, and pipelining and acquisition for the materials to build the EVs that we don't necessarily see in some of the more traditional product lines. Without a doubt, I think part of it is mandates. Part of it's also, I think, interest due to high gas prices. Mm -hmm. uh, part of it is also probably down to these vehicles generally being priced at premium levels, mm -hmm. like above the, the the mainstream of these makers' lineups. Also uh, to a desirable customer base. True. When we take a look at the demographic, the, the, this is always really an interesting thing for me. When you take a look at the demographic that General Motors will share on the average Bolt customer. And when you talk to Porsche about the Taycan customer, which is fantastically expensive, the Taycan uh, has an average transaction price higher than Panamera. It's just about 911 territory for them. So over $150,000 a unit, well over. Um, but the demographic of these two vehicles pulls apart 
is a lot closer than you might think. Uh, it's not, you know, Chevy Spark to Porsche 911 kind of demographic split. Um, these are all largely dual income people, uh, single family homeowners, multiple car households, generally with, with older kids, which is an interesting twist. So these are not empty nesters yet, but they're not using it as family mobile. Um, and generally they could afford either of these opposites. The, the people that are out there buying a Chevy Bolt logically could probably afford a $90,000 EV based on their demographic profile. They're choosing to spend less. Um, and that is a really interesting twist uh, when you take a look at EV shoppers across the board. We do not yet see penetration in large numbers to people that are apartment dwellers or, uh, or in some other form of shared housing uh, or high-rise townhomes, high-rise condos, things like that. That is a, is a market that's going to take a lot longer, I think. Oh, without a doubt. That's, that's as great a challenge to EV manufacturers as the lack of hydrogen infrastructure is to hydrogen car builders generally. I think mm -hmm. it is the biggest challenge. The apartment dweller, the folks who are in remote rural regions or in densely packed cities. Yeah, it's kind of an odd twist that either, so either side of that is tricky, but we can have this donut of suburbia where the EV will definitely work. And, you know, there's logically a lot of suburbia still to consume because the vast majority of cars are sold to suburbanites. Um, you know, people are less likely to own a car if you live downtown. You're less likely to own multiple cars if you live downtown. And most of America lives in suburbia. There's actually quite little of, of America's population that lives in true rural America. Um, it's a declining number year on year. So it's definitely that suburban focus where, where their inroads can be made. And there are significant room to make those inroads. Now, in terms of numbers, I think it's important to break this down for our viewers. The vast majority of EVs sold in the first quarter here in the U.S. were still Teslas. They sold 113,882. Uh, Kia sold about 8,400. Ford sold about 7,400. And Hyundai, which is often twinned with Kia, sold 6,900. And you can see how even as Tesla volumes grow, Tesla is losing EV market share. Yeah. They're both happening at once. And uh, before you get excited about the Tesla numbers, I asked uh, Kia about that, and they they wink wink admitted that they had packed the port prior to the release of the EV6 in the U.S. So they had several months of ships just unloading EV6s onto the docks. So that way, the moment it was on sale, they could have a big number the first month. So they said, "Don't expect uh, don't expect fabulous months. Uh, it'll be sort of a dull roar, and it will climb gradually as they can increase production." Fair enough. As we look to buy new electric cars, we also acknowledge that the average age of the car on American roads has climbed from 9.6 years in 2002 to 12.1 years today, with a full 25% of cars on the road in the United States being 16 years old or older. Mm -hmm. And that's changing the way used cars are offered. Uh, we now have, just recently debuting, a Honda True Used program that will take cars up to 10 years old with no mileage limit, run them through a CPO checklist, and then sell them as Honda True Used with a 100-day, 5,000-mile warranty. And remember, yep. used car prices are up 40% this year. Is this the future of CPO? I kind of hope not. <laughs> In a way. I'm not entirely clear. I want a Honda or anything that is quite that old. I mean, the warranty is going to make it more palatable. So unquestionably, 
if you are concerned at all, you're wanting to buy a used car, you're thinking, I don't want to get ripped off. I don't want to buy it from nobody. I want to buy it from a dealer. I want this, this guarantee. Keep in mind, it's going to be more expensive than buying that same Honda from Craigslist or wherever. But if you want that level of protection and a little bit of guarantee there, then it's, it's going to be an option for you. But it's definitely going to raise the cost of those used cars, which are already you know massively inflated over a few years ago. Um, you know, the CPO doesn't come for free. Honda's, Honda and the dealers are not doing this out of the kindness of their heart. They're making money on it. So um, that's the most important thing for customers to remember. Um, CPOs can be a decent deal depending on the, the flavor and the time of year and what kind of incentives the manufacturer is putting on it. But generally speaking, you're going to pay more for that CPO vehicle than if you found that used car privately. Without a doubt, prices are going to rise, and it's general across the industry because this follows Ford last year with mm -hmm. Ford Blue Advantage, which would take a car up to 10 years old and 120,000 miles and offer a sort of decontented level of inspection and warranty on that. And I see this A, driving up the cost to use cars, but also bringing automakers into an unlikely conflict uh, with Carvana, which has a 100-day 4,189 mile warranty. Where that number came from, I can only imagine an actuary decided, but that's their warranty. It's very similar to this new Honda True Used. Yes, and I think that's definitely what some manufacturers have been looking at. I know that Honda's doing it, but a lot of other car companies had sort of talked privately about, you know, maybe this is something they're looking into. You know, what? how can we get on, get in on this with our dealers on board? Because, you know, the car manufacturer can't invest in it directly due to some franchise laws in the U.S., um, but it is definitely something that has been looked into. Although Carvana is not doing as well now as they, as one might uh, one might hope that they could be doing, uh, they're laying off a large number of employees and they're bleeding cash everywhere. Um, but it is an interesting, brave new world there on the used car front. Um, I can see that a car company like Honda or Toyota could get away with it. I am really intrigued to see how Ford, if they will ever share numbers with their program, how Ford has done on that. You know, the reality is that new cars over the last 10 years are much less likely to have problems at 100,000 miles than they were decades ago. But there is certainly a, a brand perception that the Honda is going to be more reliable than the Toyota, regardless of the fact that numbers don't always bear that out, depending on the model. Um, but I am intrigued to see if, if Ford if their volume really is is in a place to justify that and if if the, the actuaries were right <laughs> on on the risk involved in this kind of program as well and now from a consumer standpoint i remember when tesla had the best pre-owned program in the industry and now i would argue they have one of the worst they're the only company that'll sell you a crashed car repaired through some sort of a cpo mm -hmm. um, where we're going from honda with their previous cpo was you know up to five years old and no more than 80,000 miles in, in terms of, of actual age on the car. Uh, this is a much less sound vehicle for the long term. You've got barely more than a 90-day warranty. It's like consumer electronics. I would like to see in the long term how they price these things, but it is a yeah. big step down. Now, Acura is going to be doing the same thing. They're going to give you a bit more, six months and 7,500 miles, but it's not, you know, paradigm change compared to the Honda. Um, you know, in the past, we'd only seen this sort of thing with ultra luxury brands like Ferrari, which will do 11 years, or Porsche, which is 13 years and up to 124,000 miles. Seeing it on cars that may have serious paint defects, uh, interior trim wear, lots of miles, unknown history, several owners. 
I think at this point, yeah. you're probably better off just buying it from a private owner who has documented maintenance. I mean, that's going to be the question is what kind of vehicles will Honda accept in this program? Are they going to be that sort of vehicle or are they only going to try and take the cream of the crop with the older vehicles? We don't know yet. Um, we do know that part of their their uh, decision making process here was that dealers are suffering from a, a lack of used inventory and dealers make a lot of money from their used cars as well. You go in looking for the new Accord and you say, well, maybe I can't afford the new Accord. Maybe I'll take a used Civic or something along those lines. Um, only now in, you know, 2022, you go into the dealer and it's, you know, the new whatever with a markup of $5,000 or the two used cars they have in the lot, both of which are insanely expensive. Um, so the plan here is supposedly to help the dealers, you know, acquire more vehicles either at auction or to maintain trade-ins that they would not have otherwise kept. Uh, so generally speaking, you know, if the if the car that gets traded in when someone buys a new car, if it was over mileage for the CPO program, most dealers didn't actually hold on to the inventory. They would just toss it at auction somewhere and someone else would buy it and it would go on one of those, you know, cheesy used car lots or maybe it would get sent to South America somewhere like that. Um, now this would then theoretically allow and encourage these dealers to accept those higher mileage vehicles on their lot um, and then help them shift it, you know, basically with the, the guarantee of the Honda warranty. And this is interesting because it sort of plays into one of these strengths that automakers will always have over Carvana or CarMax, which is cars coming off of lease. Mm -hmm. And in the past, like you said, a lot of these cars that were over mileage would never make it into CPO programs. But if you connect the dots, you see GM with its Car Bravo program attempting to take cars coming off of leases from all of their national dealers and create a one-stop shop through Car Bravo, where you can browse all of these used cars through a GM-created web portal. If you add all of those lease returns that are either um, too much wear and tear over mile, you know, it, for some reason violated the terms of the lease and couldn't be traditionally CPO'd. Mm -hmm. Now you have all the traditional CPO cars and all of the out of spec cars coming back to one manufacturer sanctioned right. central clearinghouse for all the lease returns in the country. And exactly. I think that's the next step. And brands with high brand loyalty and high return customer numbers can also benefit here too, even in the more traditional purchase space. So, you know, for instance, Honda on average, their vehicles are purchased, not leased. So the high, the more expensive and the more luxury oriented the company, the higher the volume of leases are. You know, by the time you were up to at, at Mercedes E-Class territory or S-Class territory, it's, you know, 75, 80, 90% even on some models that are leased. But down in the Hondas and Toyotas and Fords of the world, it generally is less than 50% that are leased. So there they're chasing the customer that maybe they buy a car every seven years to eight years. And now that customer said, well, I'm going to hang on to my car to 10 years. So now you can see these, these numbers stretching out. So there is going to be a certain number of, of, uh, of customers that do that are original owner vehicle, uh, owner shoppers rather, that are then coming back for their next new Honda and they're brand loyal. So I liked my last one. I'm going to get another one. And that gives that dealer the ability to cling on to that car in a market space where otherwise Carvana or someone else could have picked it up from them. But then there is that, uh, you know, the the difficulty in dealing with Carvana and Vroom. The, some of that uncertainty there. You Are you going to get a good deal? We don't know. Um, you know, we know that the dealer is probably going to haggle more on your used car and maybe they're not going to give you as good of a dealer, but it's, it's right there at the same time. And if you're going to buy a new car, 
then Carvana and Vroom don't end up being quite as good of an option sometimes because scheduling the vehicle pickup and and the delivery of your new vehicle, et cetera, that can be a challenge, you know, and you can just go into the dealer and make it a one-stop shop. So I could see customers being willing to do that, lose a few hundred bucks in the deal for, you know, a 10-year-old car um, and it being an advantage to the dealer to have inventory. Now, I think it also raises a question. This is right up your alley as a, as a professional car reviewer with multiple long-term test cars. But does the industry need to look at these now decade or older cars and realize maybe the 20,000 to 40,000 mile long-term test is no longer sufficient? Do we need to buy cars out of CPO and road test them for another 40,000 miles? Uh, does the standard have to change as cars last longer and you know the age of the car on the road continues to increase unabated? Yeah, and that will be the question. Um, you know, is is this increase you know temporary? You know, there were there were some economic reasons previously why the average age of the U.S. car was rising, um, and now there are supply <laughs> supply issues. Does not appear to be a true demand issue now. Um, you know, if we could get back to a world where where inflation was more stable, car prices was were, were more stable or declined gradually from the average transaction price. Point, et cetera. You know, could we get back to an era of declining, you know, car age on the roads in America, or is that never going to happen again? It's a little uncertain, but electrification could point to the age increasing. Um, you know, if electrified cars are going to be more expensive than than the ICE cars that they're replacing, that may push these purchases out further for people that may question affordability. Also, with new technologies on the road, I mostly mean electric propulsion here, but also a lot of interior infotainment systems and systems that are designed to work with a particular phone or operating system. I would love to know five or six years down the road, or in the case of like a 2012 Tesla Model S, um, now 10 years down the road, how do these systems age? Because I can mm -hmm. pick up a car from 1950, and I would know that if I bought a 1950 car and took it to a mechanic in 1960, there'd be nothing in there that couldn't be repaired using the knowledge and tools available. Whereas if you're outside of the battery and hybrid propulsion warranty, the, the like eight years, 100,000 miles with an EV from the early 2010s, what's it like operating completely without a net to catch you? And what about these infotainment technologies yeah. from like 2015? Do they still work? Are they still reliable? Yeah, I mean, on the re on the mechanical side of things, uh, bearing in mind that EVs are more reliable, there's a lot less to go wrong. Yes. Um, you know, there are some worries about, you know, will the batteries still be available? There was some initial concern that maybe Chevy wouldn't be making the Bolt battery pack anymore. For instance, the original Bolt battery yes. pack for the first models, they said that's not true. There's just a shortage of supplies, but they will be offering them again. Uh, we know that Nissan is refurbishing and replacing battery packs for the original Leaf still currently. Um, one problem, obviously, is you're not going to be able to go to your backyard mechanic and start cracking open your battery pack and replacing cells yourself. That's going to need to be done by a licensed, trained person at the dealer. So dealers may actually be happy about this because even though they're not going to get as many service visits, it's almost going to be guaranteeing service visits for high mileage EVs at some point in their life because it's going to be the only place in town. Um, even if states like, uh, I believe it's Maryland, there's a few states back east that have tried the right to repair laws that are preventing like telematics features in new Subarus to function because, you know, your neighborhood shade tree mechanic has to be able to fix your telematic system. So the solution is just don't have one in those states. Um, if that 
ends up being similar, similarly applied to EVs, then uh, that'll be an interesting brave new world where everybody gets to crack open their battery and replace cells. That could lead to a lot of, a lot of really, really unstable batteries out there. But you know, it's always possible that's the world we might be in. Um, there is currently a lot of market for, um, you know, sort of DIY Tesla repairs, I guess you could say, because there are lots of crash Teslas out there that uh, Tesla does not have an, you know, an, a, a, a monopoly over. So you, know, you can buy, you know, use Tesla battery packs and use Tesla motors, et cetera, and do battery pack swaps and motor swaps and things like that into older vehicles. Um, and as a result, there are components out there that you can DIY, whether it's a good idea or not. Um, on the infotainment front, I'm going to be intrigued to see how this goes. I would say vehicles that have cell phone projection integration in them. So CarPlay or Android Auto, they're going to feel consistently fresher than anything else in that world, especially if you're a fan of those kinds of smartphone integration. Um, you know, good examples would be things like the, you know, very first generation of Chrysler's Uconnect that supported smartphone integration, the first Hondas, et cetera, that supported it. Um, I spend very little time actually in the car's native interface and it, honestly doesn't matter to me what it looks like because I never see it. Um, some car companies have managed to upgrade the look and feel, which is something that I have been impressed with. So a uh, little bit less on the Japanese company side, but um, Chrysler, Stellantis, that that portfolio of companies with Uconnect, they have issued software updates that have changed the look and feel a little bit over time. Um, so have Hyundai and Kia with their vehicles. Our Nexo is now three years old. Um, and its uh, appearance of its infotainment system um, is actually the current generation that we find in the Genesis lineup, for instance. So it has the sort of funky moving map display and some background graphics, et cetera. Um, and it was feeling a little bit dated when they released that update. Now it kind of feels fresher. But there's obviously going to be a limit to where that processor can take that software. It's eventually going to get frozen in time. Um, thinking back on it, the first car I owned with a big touchscreen was a, a 2006 Jaguar XJ. It had a, a nice just sort of, you know, seven inch, seven inch screen, I guess, in the dash. And uh, by the time it was gone, it was definitely old. Um, very, very, very old looking. But if it had CarPlay, you know, it wouldn't have bugged me. It didn't, though. So I guess uh, a concluding thought then, with cars lasting longer in the conventional sense, that is, engines don't have to be rebuilt at 100,000 miles, automatic transmissions don't have to come apart every 50,000 miles, cars just don't rust anymore unless mm -hmm. they've been badly repaired after a crash. Uh, but a lot of the technology becomes very questionable, especially when you've got potentially defective critical subsystems like a BMW iDrive or some sort mm -hmm. of a screen that represents your instrument binnacle. Um, so will Auto Buyer's Guide put any thought into maybe buying cars that are CPO four or five years old to see how they hold up long term? Yeah, I mean, that's a tricky one because it's a data set of one and I, I dislike data sets of one. Um, I, I am hoping that some reliability you know, a company out there that does reliability research starts to look into this this new CPO world that we're in, um, because outside of three years, most of the reliability metrics just they stop caring about the product. Um, Consumer Reports still collects data on older vehicles, but it's a relatively small number of vehicles, and Consumer Reports is frankly looking at a relatively small number of vehicles. Um, their pool of vehicles has shrunk considerably over the last ten years or so. 
Um, and the last I had heard, their their reliability research is based on a pool of about 500,000 cars, period. Um, someone I'm sure will correct us down there in the comment section if I'm wrong on that number. Um, but it has it has shrunk, but it's about one in ten, one tenth of what it was uh, in the 1980s, for instance. So the 1980s, many more people were subscribing. The data sets were larger, lots of good data there on, on what was going on. And it represented a larger portion of the car buying world and the car driving world. But I mean, in America, 14,000, 14 million cars rather a year are sold, and they're looking at a data set of 500,000 over decades of, of ownership. So really talking about a very small number of cars, a um, whole different topic for another day. And maybe uh, maybe an interview subject here is the whole world of reliability. But I would also say that you know reliability metrics generally tend to be tricky because people do not cast a wide net in reliability research other than J.D. Power. And everybody seems to hate J.D. Power for some reason. Um, but Consumer Reports, they only poll their members. And so it's a it's sort of a, a self-feeding thing. You know, you, you're interested in reliability, so you buy Consumer Reports. So you buy the cars that Consumer Reports says are reliable. You report on the cars that Consumer Reports wants to do. So then you subscribe, so then you buy. So, you know, you complete the circle here. And you'll notice in the data set of Consumer Reports that it's skewed very heavily towards, you know, overtly reliable brands, interestingly. So... You know, just because a vehicle is the best seller in the segment does not mean that their data reflects that that level of, of sales volume. Um, for instance, you know, their a classic example is their rating on on full size sedans in America right now. Um, you know, Dodge Charger is the best selling in this in America. Chrysler 300 and the two of them together outsell all the others put together. And they rate the Charger as, you know, extremely high in reliability. But when you drill down to the numbers, they're basing that on one year in the last decade of data because that's all the car numbers they have. So that one year was reliable. They're calling all Chargers reliable. Meanwhile, they're saying it's more reliable than a Toyota Avalon. And I'm not saying that, you know, a Charger is going to burst into flames the moment you roll it off the lot. But is it really more reliable than an Avalon? Probably yeah, not. I saw that, that raised my eyebrow too. Alex, how do people find us? Excellent question. Well, you can find us at uh, alexnautos.com, YouTube Alex Nautos, EV Buyer's Guide, of course, the, the Twitters, the Facebooks, all those other social places. And of course, podcasts near you. Climb out, Tim out, Alex out. Thanks for logging on. See y'all later.